This week on Dig Me Out, part two of Tim and Jay's interview with special guest Alan Johannes of Eleven. In this episode, Tim, Jay, and Alan revisit the 1993 self-titled album by Eleven. You mentioned, um, you know, your production work, but I actually wanted to ask you about Pat McCarthy, who is credited with yeah. co-producing the self-titled album. Now, he ended up being yeah. the in-house producer for R.E.M. Um, yeah. after Basically, after Bill Berry left, he worked on all those albums. Yeah. And he's also worked with you, too. Stuff. Yeah. Yeah. What was it like yeah, working with him? Excuse me. Well, um, uh, lovely, amazing guy. Um, you know, sometimes there was a little bit of uh, headbutting. But that's that's pretty normal for the process, you know. A real sweetheart, and uh, we, we spent a lot of time playing pool. We, had, we got a pool table there at at the, at the studio as well. Um, no, it was great. Uh, we we did it over at the uh, uh, Music Grinder, I think. I can't even remember now. Yeah, I'm a, off of Hollywood, and uh, you know, we just set up very much live. Like there's one or two overdubs per per song at the most, you know, and. The only, you know, that record I remember, you know, we're just going. We had a limited amount of uh, time, you know, and uh, I ended up getting uh, sick, and all that was left to do was my vocals. So I kind of pushed myself through the vocals. So on some songs, I sound pretty gritty because that's what it sounds like when you have to sing through laryngitis, <laughs> mm. which is really funny, you know, especially like, yes, all right. But, you know, had, had, you know, two days left to do vocals and then, you know, what's that? We had a really cool, uh, you know, we were just happy to be captured in a very live manner, you know, and, and sounding somewhat like what we sounded like live. So, um, and you know that record was was uh, the first time that we you know because we had uh, we had quite a bit of support on on MTV you know between a couple of videos and Beavis and Butthead just uh, earmarked to reach out to make fun of a couple of different times which was great. <laughs> That's an honor. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, there's, there's one of them where, where they because in the in the video I ended up I forgot again like short blonde hair and like crazy makeup and whatever. I, I, it seemed like a good idea at the time, or <laughs> at least to, to the video director. And uh, we did it in you know black and white film with uh, you know in post painted the rose red and my guitar was red with a and Beavis and Butthead I think called me like an evil boy George or something. Um, <laughs> But they ended up using it, uh, using it twice. Excellent. Hey, that's not bad. That's promotion. I know so, it is, and I, I have to. Uh, you know, it was Diana Cass who was uh, working in Hollywood who had the the crazy idea to. You know, they never knew what to do with Eleven because it sounded too too alternative for rock, too rock for alternative, too old school for new school, too new school for old school. It's like uh, it was always like, what two singers, a guy and a girl. Not since Captain and Tennille, you know, whatever. It was just always like people didn't quite understand um, in terms of being able to stuff it into a neat little uh, prepackage. Right. Um, and so Diana Cass was like, well, it really rocks, so why don't I take it to metal radio? And at one point, I think we're uh, Crash Today or, or Reach Out, I forgot which one, was number two in the metal charts with Pantera being number one. Mm-hmm. And I thought, whoa, that's really odd. But uh, there you go. 
We well, played the, a foundation, Foundations Forum, which is like the hard rock convention at the time. Mm-hmm. The first song is evident. There's a dramatic change from the first album to this album. You know, I think we, yes. Tim and I were are doing our best to describe the first album and, and came up with it's probably a, a mix of maybe the Red Hot Chili Peppers and the Beatles. Um, yeah, and, are, and there's some Stevie Wonder in there, you know. A little bit yeah, of that. yeah. But, but I'm very stressed because I'm list, uh, I've listened to it for years and I thought, you know what, you know, like back on in the tape analog days, you could vary speed, you know, the tape very easily. And uh, mm-hmm. the tempo's feel a little rushed to me and our voices sound a little chipmunky. So I'm kind yeah. of thinking that the dude was because uh, we didn't sound like that. We didn't, I never sounded like that. Right. I think so, I think he must have uh, sped it up a little bit in the mix and stuff. Either oh, that really? or, or oh yeah, either that or or uh, some. You know, I forgot. Maybe there was a helium balloon party one night, and it just, <laughs> I just blocked it out of my memory. <laughs> I don't know, but it's kind of weird. The songs are good, but it could re- definitely. Uh, we interpret all of them better, you know. There's some good moments here and there. So, from a tone standpoint, you know, you guys are singing different, or it's slowed down, <laughs> whatever happened there. Yeah. But the vocals are definitely different, uh, and the the music's dramatically different. The tones are heavier, um, they're darker, they're thicker. So, are you saying that this is basically just you guys just ca- trying to capture your live sound, or did you make a conscious decision yeah, yeah, they, to try to try to get rougher and heavier? No, no, they, it, it was definitely, I mean, yes, yes, the uh, first record, what happened is that Josh and I, when we were just the two of us for a few years there with Walk the Moon, we just explored songwriting and counterpoint and all that other stuff. And um, that kind of, like Walk the Moon is more related to the first 11 record than, than the second 11 records related to the first one. You know, it's weird. Oh. Um, and I think I think we just started to to evolve, you know, and and we started to get influenced by what was coming. You know, we, we'd heard Soundgarden and Alice in Chains, and and uh, you know, you, you get inspired by that. Mm-hmm. And uh, even though live we always sounded heavier, but if you just imagine a heavier version of of the Awaken the Dream songs, but, mm-hmm. but part-wise, they were definitely uh, busier and more stuff going on than just kind of sitting on a groove and like on 11 11. Mm-hmm. so we, we we evolved you know and we've always been really uh really open to being inspired by you know obviously there's this uh it goes both ways you know like uh when black hole sun first came out a lot of people thought wait a minute that that sounds like it could be an 11 song or something you know mm-hmm which song garden, you know, so, so there's this weird, like a, uh, a cross inspiration that happens with, with your peers, which I think sure. is a healthy thing, you know? Absolutely. The, uh, the guitar tone on the first song is, is really unique and different. What, do you remember what your rig was at the time that were you, you, uh, were using for that album? Actually, you wouldn't even believe it. It's, uh, it's four solid state, uh, combos, the RG80, the Randall ones, you know? Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. Uh, wow. Just four of them in series, and uh, you know, lot, lot, just very like saturated, um, but clear. You know, I, I was trying to find a, a kind of tone that could um, make every note in the chord clearer, even if it was a crazy chord. You know, because obviously, when you when you when you put some weird inversions through distortion, they start to sound unclear and muddy. 
Mm-hmm. So I, I came up with uh, that rig at the time, and, and uh, it's a very, very uh, specific sound, you know? It is, yeah. It sounds like you're almost playing a semi-hollow body or hollow body guitar, too. Yeah, that well, I think that I had my jazz master that I've had since the What Is This Days, and uh, mm-hmm. I do believe I had my um, Hackstrom hollow body 12-string on some of that, too. Oh, wow. And, okay. uh, yeah. Um, but that's, you know, pretty much just, you know, like Natasha had her Hammond organ and her Moog for the bass. You know, it's all, it was always like the left hand, her left hand was the bass, you know, always. Um, you know, there was no, you know, uh, guitar and string bass on any of mm-hmm. our stuff. She always played Moogs and stuff. Gotcha. And had this incredible ability to, like, uh, have her left hand be sitting with Jack as if it was another person in terms of the groove. And then her right hand would be doing all kinds of stuff and then she'd sing uh, over the top as if it was a third person. So that's why we, we started calling her Spider. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that makes total sense, yeah. Wow, that's amazing. On track two, um, I I think I've seen in other places you've you've mentioned Jimmy Page and Led Zeppelin as being a pretty big influence influence, and I think this is probably one of the first songs that you hear that, um, just in terms of the rhythm um, and Jack's uh, drumming, particularly yeah. in Reach Out, has a very kind yes. of just heavy Zeppelin feel to it. Yeah, and, and like a riff that floats over the top, you know. Yeah. Um, I, I remember we ended up having a hard time getting uh, the drum sound we were looking for, and th- they had a really weird, tall brick room, which is just enough, I mean, just big enough to have a drum set in it and the microphones, and then it went straight up, you know? So I think that give, uh, that density of the drums on, the, on that record comes from that.
was definitely one of one of the ones that people really uh, gravitated to. I have a lot of a, a lot of other favorites on on, on that record. Uh, I really love Avatar. Uh, that's the one thing I got to say though. I, I just do wish that the vocals were louder in general. They're a little bit buried in the mix. Yeah. We were gonna ask if uh, it seems like on on the first record, even on Thunk, you guys are doing a lot more harmonies and on this record i couldn't tell if you're just not doing them or if it's just mixed differently um well we're doing less there was less harmonies going on in general you know which is trying to keep it more stripped down mm-hmm. um but but it was also that they were too quiet and uh, you know to me just a little bit louder overall because sometimes you, you know i mean i i can understand i can hear what's being sung because you know it's i know it but it's in your head yeah uh, yeah on Avatar, like, you know, in certain songs, Hieronymus, you know, I'd love to hear Natasha's voice louder. Mm-hmm. But, uh, but you know, it, 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 it was, uh, I'm, I'm really happy with uh, Subtitle because it's, uh, you know, the first time we managed to capture the live vibe, you know. Is that considered probably the highest charting song from the album? And, yeah, and probably has the, the biggest hook, I guess, in terms of a chorus. Did, did you guys get any pressure from, from the label or... Any of the business side to, to write more songs like that or go in that direction more? No, I mean you know they always tried, but but uh, uh, we 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 found that uh, you know it was never it would never pay off if it wasn't organic, you know. Mm-hmm. L- like we you know we we did give a you know, you know we like to be team players and we we, we tried to like, but I mean in our, in our own minds they were all really you know catchy, mm-hmm. you know what I mean. Like Natasha and I would always write when we sit down to write. We'd be like, okay, you know, we we love music so much, and and uh, what what is it that's missing out there that we would love to hear? And that's how we went about writing stuff. You know, unusual yes. elements coming together, or you know, especially Natasha is such a incredible uh, master of of, har- of harmony, of musical harmony. You know, like mm-hmm. tension release and counterpoints and all that stuff um sometimes it would help when they would just say okay we need something more like whatever and mm-hmm. either and either we would, would like take that you know and it, let it fold in and then just write something that we might not have written you know in that particular way and and it worked sometimes sometimes it did you know if it sounded forced if it's not natural just you know you got to be able to believe in what you're doing and uh you know there there was always the pressure but i i didn't i didn't really see why you know that in other words all they had to do is get all the ducks in a row because in the 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 label structure back then was like okay you finish your record your NR person has been trying to you know lay liaison between it's his or her job to make sure that the, you get the best uh, record you know but usually they're your fan already so then they, they don't become so uh, uh what's it called uh, subjective mm-hmm. and then suddenly you have like promotion people and marketing people and the president and you gotta get like 10 people to agree and then of course they're all sitting there uh most of the time quite scared not to make a make waves so yeah. to do just enough to keep their job and and not and not enough to Make an inspired balls and moves, you know, which is human just nature, like, and no one can blame them. You know, especially with with yeah. the fat that used to exist back then, the, the ridic- ridiculous amounts of money used to get spent. 
you know, two thousand yeah. dollar dinners for no reason. You know. Um, corporate corporate so, America and, mentality. And so it became it really became a, a, a question of luck, you know. Timing and luck, maybe the year after, maybe a few months later, maybe a different person, a promotion. Right. And we never really fit into a category. It was, you know, it's, I mean, I remember Natasha, she was the only girl in, the, in some of these tours, you know, back then. Right. In, a, in, a, in a, you know, pretty much basically a heavy rock band with, you know, unusual overtones. But we weren't really lucky in our career, that's for sure. Well, that's a theme that we've had through this whole uh this whole adventure that 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 is this show is that uh we spent a little bit of time trying to figure out you know what why certain things were commercial successes and why they weren't and if it matters and what role did they play otherwise and a lot of times i think we we've come down to it's just timing it's just weird timing of things you know things exactly. were released too early or too late or the label didn't know what to do with it and you know just weird yeah. things like that and it doesn't uh it really has, at the end of the day, you know, 20 years later when we're looking at some of this music, it has no bearing on whether it was good or not, <laughs> which is no, interesting. That's true. And, and, you know, thankfully, uh, um, you know, we made a lot of new fans throughout the years, and, uh, um, and I'm pretty confident it's not just going to disappear into, you know, I mean, it's, it's for a lot of the really diehards, you know, the, the, the 11 fans were really intense. Like, 11 fans were usually pretty funny pretty smart and uh knowledgeable of a lot of uh the arts and, and things and and they were extremely um supportive you know what i mean there's like there's, there's mm -hmm. some people that i like got one show this <laughs> i'm on the phone uh payphone with my mom back home and and this kid's like you know sitting next to me and he wants to talk to me and i say okay one second please i'll be right with you and suddenly he shows me his, his arms and it's I've got a I'm staring back at myself on I got a giant me on his arm and then a giant attack oh. on the other arm. <laughs> and and then in the the most impossibly large eleven logo on his chest. And of course, you know, and you just go, Okay, well we can never break up just because of this one kid. <laughs> <laughs> did did you hang up on your mom immediately? Yeah, I just said I called her back and, and I was like Oh my God, dude, you're crazy! He goes, no, man, it's, it's awesome. You guys are good. And, uh, and I said to Natasha, "So you know, we can never suck from now on, right?" Right, right. Yeah, yeah. That was the idea from the first place. Anyway. Yeah. Speaking speaking of Natasha, track three is the first song that she takes the lead vocal on. And I'm curious as to how the setup was for songwriting in terms. Did you guys write separately? Did you write together? Did you know who was going to sing the lead? Did that change based on the key or who wrote the well, lyrics? How did that work? We actually wrote everything together. Um, okay. You know what I mean? Some, okay. some things I might have started, some things she might have started, but we always finish it together, including the lyrics. We'd have sessions and, you know, sit down and, and just riff back and forth. And then, we're and strangely, we're both kind of... Uh, trying to, you know, hand off the lead singing to the other person so we could just play. It's right. very strange, you know, but, but then we would, sometimes we both have a crack at the song and, and, and then and then we both go, okay, no, this one's for you, for sure. And then I'd be like, and this one's for you. And she goes, yeah, okay, I'll do this one, you know, like that, you know. Um, 
and we kind of decided to whatever the, the, the Biden tonality was right. And very often, especially later on, you know, we started singing. Um, well, on the first record, there was a lot of just unison singing, you know. Mm-hmm. And and then we were like, well, what kind of waters are bound? You know, we really should, you know, as we thought we'd, we'd have a go at that idea. Um, and then, you know, it was just became song by song. And sometimes switching verses and switching choruses and whatever. I think by Howling Book, we really got our shit together in terms of, uh, you know, the clarity of what, what we were. And that's definitely one of our most live, Five records, you know. Um, but we're just, uh, I suppose, learning on the job. Even though we made some good records, right? Uh, and there's people that say, "No, Gone's the best one." Like, no, I like this and uh, whatever. <laughs> the one thing I wanted to mention about this song is, with about a minute left in it, there you throw in this just ripping guitar lead that plays over the end chorus, and I'm I'm wondering in the writing, is that something that you come up with after you've written the chord structure of the song or is that something where you have a you're playing around and you're playing a lead and go we could build something around this how did, how did that hey, work know, into you're talking about, uh, about Hieronymus no a uh, tower at the end of I think it's at the end of towers there's like oh, a towers right right yeah. oh, sorry yeah it's got the uh, um you know what and we, you know with the time when we worked on the song it was uh written originally like acoustic guitar and piano you know mm. and i think it's when, when we got into the room with jack and we started to flush out the the, the vibe then it would just uh start happening whatever you know to take off and and do things there was, that, that was always uh especially that record is very much all performed live except for like, like i said one or two of the low overdubs and uh, if i remember correctly i just kind of went for it Keeping in mind that that you just said you did most things live, when you get to tracks four and five, um, it's really that's pretty amazing to think about when you listen to the keyboard and bass parts. So you're saying yeah, that she well, played? Um, yeah, no, that 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 was all done at once. Not only that, wow. but Natasha did her vocals um, on that record pretty much in one day, and pretty much like one take or two takes for you know. Her song, definitely something to behold, you know. So yeah. So I I saw you guys live uh, 
You were touring, I believe, with Candlebox. Does that sound right? Yes. Oh, my God, yes. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it was in Cleveland at the uh, Cleveland Agora. Mm-hmm. And uh, that was definitely, I think, uh, you know, that was the takeaway from, from seeing you guys perform. Not only was it visually different than anything that was going on at the time. I mean, it's the three-piece. You didn't see a lot of three-pieces. There's a giant organ on the stage. Yeah. And a woman just, like, tearing the organ up. <laughs> and all these sounds coming out of it. And you're trying to figure out, like, is there a backing track? Or how is all this happening? And, you know, Jack's just laying down his signature, um, you know, his signature drum uh, sound. Um, what, what did, were you guys, so you're saying that she could pretty much do everything that we're hearing on the record. She was doing that live on the, yeah, I mean, on the organ. Yeah. There was, there was no backing tracks and, and everything you hear is she didn't do the bass separately. I mean, cause she was a, an incredible, uh, prodigy classical player. So, you know, she couldn't separate the left hand from the right hand. So hmm. she's comping chords or playing melodies with her right hand. And, you know, it was it would be impossible for her to do it separately if they were together, you know? Hmm. So when she would just track, we had a, a giant bass amp for her left hand. You know, it was always up to me to try to figure out how to make this gear and do that, you know? Separate the left hand from uh, the rest of it. And then... Uh, and then she just perform it, you know. And when we had, when we got a take, it's, it was pretty much we played it as you hear it, you know. So always so, like that. So she had uh, just quickly, like, what was her live setup? She had an organ. You said she had maybe a moog for the bass. Yeah, well, it depends on on what we could have. You know, the moogs are very unreliable. So I remember there was like a a PV bass module, which is a uh, had a bunch of sounds in it. You know, like just a synthesizer module with all bass sounds mm. and and the xp2 which is the uh the hammond organ that was just a you know just a single keyboard single drop you know single keyboard and so what i would do is i would program it so that like say there was eight eight patches you could do and each one had a different organ sound and then in, internally you could split the keyboard so that the bottom two octaves um, would not play organ, you know. So it would, mm-hmm. the organ would stop, and then, but it would send out uh, the MIDI information to the module to play the the bass, right? So mm-hmm. that she could stop the organ at a certain point, and then her left hand would be only the bass, or sometimes wow. later. It depends depends on the song, and then from the from the module we went into like a at the time I think it was the most reliable thing we we had was a. Kevin Kruger bass amp, and uh, uh, you know, with two, with uh, four tens and a fifteen, and so that was mm-hmm. the bass, and that sat on one side. Then to the right of it was a Leslie we carried around, which was, the organ went through, and then on the other side was my guitar amps. But wow. if you watch the, uh, that's a setup we had for the uh, Conan show. If you watch the uh, Reach Out Live on Conan, okay, on YouTube. And was that um, tour? Was that tour for this album? Uh, with yeah, that's where we reached out. We were looking for Soundgarden, and uh, that was uh, super, I think it was super unknown tour. Okay. And uh, then we stopped by and, and we did Conan, and it's it's frightful. It's very funny how young he looks. Never mind. <laughs> <laughs> 
He's kind of known yeah. as a guitar geek. Did he have any uh, questions about your guitars that you were playing? We got to meet for a second, and then I remember him being very, uh, very impressed with us. You know, um, it was very sweet, but uh, he didn't have any questions at, at that time. No. Okay. Uh, track six, or excuse me, track five, letdown. Yeah. I, I'm guessing that this is what you're talking about in terms of some overdubbing because this there's a lot of kind of orchestration going on in this song um there's like uh, layers of keys and guitars am i guessing correct with the with the overdubbing well there's definitely the evil guitar in the beginning of overdub you know that's where it starts right you know? and then and then the meat and potatoes which is the bass drums and, and the guitar goes you know mm-hmm. um that was tracked live and then I do believe Natasha played the mellotron flute and the and the bass at the same time. Wow. Uh, yeah, let's see, because we we also had uh, you know, she had a way to play the split it so she could play just that. So we just um, that's I think she played that one live, and then of course we overdubbed the vocals, you know. Um, I think Jack did a. A snare drum overdub, the sort of snare, and uh, I can't remember if I played the uh, the chorus guitar part live or not. Um, it's been a while, but I'm trying to remember now. Picturing the song. It has. It's been 19 years, so we don't expect you to expect <laughs> to remember every little detail. <laughs> This song reminds me a little bit more of the direction of Thunk. Would you agree with that? Yeah. Right, I'm still this song okay. let down, yeah. Yeah, I mean, because it's, it's, it's a little more up-tempo, and it's got, uh, you know, more, more of the percolating stuff, like, uh, you know, cross rhythms and things. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, I, I do remember that uh, I, I used to do a little trick with my jazz master tremolo to get the E-flat. Uh and then bend down the tremolo for a split second to get the and that was always a trick it's like do that and sing at the same time you just get it right it just came back to me i used to always look at them set this and go god damn it yeah that part's awesome it reminds me of uh that part reminds me of muse a little bit like uh sort of the of the band Muse, like some of those, yeah, yeah, yeah. I was gonna say bass or, or run lines that he'll do, and then it almost has a, a Hendrix feel to it 
in terms of the riff uh, i'm trying to think of this song but um uh it's it's um i'm totally blanking on the song but in terms of guitar players would is hendrix somebody in terms of those runs that you were just describing is that somebody that was an influence early oh definitely i mean i think uh page hendrix and Chet Beck, you know in terms of electric guitar um huge but uh, i started playing flamenco when i was a little kid and so paco de lucia was kind of like my god until i heard you know the great rock guitars and which i was probably nine or ten and that's when it started to switch over to electric so those guys you know um and back for the phrasing the insane vocal phrasing you know days of course were general badassery composition and bringing uh, Eastern influences into the guitar. And Hendrix just mm-hmm. for the blues and, 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 uh, and the heaviness and, the, and that really effortless way to like have a, have a, be a lead and rhythm being blurred, you know, mm-hmm. and general feel. I mean, these are just insane masters and avatars, you know. Right. Well, there's a couple songs where you're playing a lead and singing at the same time i'm thinking of like the first two songs it seems like like on on crash today there's this guitar line that's matching your vocal melody uh Uh was that hard to pull off live no i mean uh it's you know just the hendrix used to do a lot of that where he would just you know suddenly play play the uh, a lead uh, kind of along with his vocal which creates this cool thickness this doubling of the vocal it's actually easier than to to you know to, it's like uh patting your head and rubbing your stomach <laughs> yeah right yeah, so, yeah, yeah. so if you play if you're playing cro- uh, a different rhythm and or or the, the whole idea is that the vocal sounds like it's just floating on top uh, and you're not tied to the rhythm you're playing you know i used to you know it's like like a lead singer will just sing however his phrasing might go on top of it but when you're striving away you kind of you have to I always try to uh, separate myself so it could become like one thing is automatic and the other thing is more conscious, you know. Right. And so, okay. so playing, so playing the the same thing I'm seeing is actually it's not it's not that difficult, you know. Um, sometimes you know if you do it in harmony or uh, different, it all depends, you know. It's just it's just doing it. You just do it um, until it becomes, you know second nature and then you can actually concentrate and and look and look around and go wow look at i like that the core in this theater and uh, i wonder what's i wonder what's i wonder what kind of food i hope it's not pizza again after the show (laughs) (laughs) you would not believe what goes through your mind is just sitting there just going through because now you're just doing it you're just in the moment you're almost in the presence of yourself uh, or something happening to you and then mm-hmm. your brain starts to go, you know, elsewhere. <laughs> <laughs> um, I think you mentioned early on when you start talking about this record, you mentioned that on Yes, All Right, did I hear you right? When you said you the vocal for that, you had laryngitis when you cut that? Yeah, yeah. It's a, a tearing through my throat on that one. Okay, because that's a I song mean, I, that it, we, we pulled out as being, you know, one that we wanted to talk to you about your your vocal style on. You know, it's very... Yeah. I guess I would describe it in the most generic sense as blues influenced or soul influenced. Um, yeah, definitely. Which, 
for hard rock, especially in the '90s, you know, you can't find a whole other, a lot of comparisons to that. The best I could come up with right. would maybe be like a Doug Pinnock of King's X or Nash Cato of Urge Overkill. You know, people with right. sort of deeper registers and um, can get you know a good amount of range and have some grit. In this song in particular, you you, you definitely have a uh, a lot of that grit and character going on. coming from in terms of singing how did you learn to sing how did you find your voice uh how did, I, how well, did all I mean, that come I together always, yeah i mean i always had a, a, a you know decent range not super huge but i always had a good low range too um mm. what what i was trying to figure out is, is how to get a good grit and compression you know without tearing my throat up you know mm. um and it was really hard when i was young like i had a very clean pure round voice and uh um, I just started to actually. Uh, unfortunately, it was I started smoking at 22, and then it, it immediately became easier to get the grip. That's the became a, very much put upon by the smoking. Um, and then you know, just kind of like uh, singing along to a lot of. I mean, I, I really, really was heavily influenced by uh, a lot of soul and, art, especially like uh, Sly and the Family Stones, TV Wonder, and you know. And then, and then, started to listen to a lot of the incredible Delta blues and a lot of the early, like, you know, Brian Willie Johnson and Robert Johnson and uh, John Lee Hooker. You know, that just kind of uh, informs you because it's so connected deeply to to rock music. You know, mm-hmm. I mean, a lot of uh, you know Sabbath riffs and a lot of Zeppelin riffs are direct blues riffs, really. Right. And the electric guitar being able to bend and and, and get that sound of, like a vocal would. You know. yeah, so you I, really I like think... sing sing and play guitar are to you are really one and the same. Like you rarely, it sounds like you rarely do just one. Yeah, right. no, almost almost never. Some you know, I mean, it's sometimes you know I've stood on stage without a guitar and sang. Mm-hmm. You know, like. Uh, the Queens uh, 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 got a session a couple of times. But um, I'm trying to figure out what the hell to do with my hands, so I just kind of <laughs> grab the microphone. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I guess you can grab the microphone with one hand and then gesticulate with the other hand. like You, know. <laughs> you clap over your head to get the crowd going. 
<laughs> yeah. yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> you have to really uh, yeah. learn sign language, and then you can sign the lyrics as you're singing them. <laughs> That's one way to go. Just grab a tambourine. Yeah, go yeah. the Ian Asbury route and shake a tambourine. Be the guy on stage yeah, with Queens of the Stone Age playing the tambourine. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's always really funny, tambourine. It's like, you know, and then even and then put like a, a couple of beautiful scarves on it, too. You know, just start getting your your live gear together. Yeah. <laughs> Dress it up a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. Trek 7, Avatar. Um, uh-huh. One of my favorites. Well, we had it when we we got to this point in the album. We were talking a lot about the lyrics, um, Jay and I, uh-huh. and I guess I have more of a general question in the sense that we didn't find that we were seeing a narrative storytelling style with the lyrics. It seemed like it was more um, abstract. I guess it would be the. Is that fair in terms of us? It's always hard to separate lyrics from music because everything can be interpreted in different ways. Um, right, but when you and Natasha were writing lyrics, were you thinking in terms of narratives and story and structure, or was it more like we have a melody and we're trying to fit words to work with the melody? And how was how did that all come about? Well, in our case, uh, we were kind of uh, mildly obsessed with uh, figuring out reality. So there's a lot of uh, references that have to do with uh, mythology or religion or quantum physics or anything that helps you explain the nature of reality we're kind of uh, deeply disturbed by uh you know how difficult it can be and 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 so which i don't think a lot of people get because I, I, I we didn't mean to be obtuse about it but uh like avatar is, is a song about a a female um sage in a cave where, where disciples go and and she's really connected to uh, whatever the source is that makes all of this happen as a, in a non-specific way. You know, I'm, I'm not talking about religious or anything. And that, that's what that's... <laughs> it's not exactly your average rock song right. uh, right. lyric. But, but um, you know... I got kind of a progressive rock feel from, from some, of the, some of the lyrics, like a Genesis, King Crimson... Yeah kind of feel from yeah. some of it in yeah terms of... less fairies less fairies and more like uh you know consciousness driven or whatever <laughs> fairies are cool too i'm not putting down fairies you know <laughs> <laughs> forest, yeah, yeah. don't put down or, fairies It'll the fairy uh, coalition's yeah, gonna or, be or, all up there yeah, yeah forest yeah exactly or forest nymphs or or spirit of the woods <laughs> or whatever main ads <laughs> or whatever yeah uh did you guys being that um, you're obviously romantically involved, and that's fairly unique for for um, people to be personally close and professionally and in a band. Um, did you guys ever have any conflicts or reservations about bringing material to the band that maybe one of you wrote about the other one or any anything like that? Was there any or or was there any like awkwardness in the relationship between you know just being so close all the time? I mean, not really because we, we, we were almost kind of like, uh, we were so quite different in many ways. We kind of became this one thing, and, and uh, we find it really easy to tune into the the tune that, that we had written and, and what the lyrics should be. And 
you know, we never, we never, for some reason, it, it I guess it, it was less of a personal life experience storytelling thing as, as more as like a, a documentation of what we were both concerned with on a, on a very big scale. Oh, wow. Um, so, you know, so it was all very, really like very a, mutual. Yeah, it's not, not really like, you know, it wasn't until like, like Spark was probably the first time. Well, on Howling Book, we, we started to kind of, uh, uh, polarize a little bit, you know, uh, on purpose mm-hmm. to like have a little bit more of like, um, you know, individual approaches to a song, no more from the female, more from the male, or, or whatever. Mm-hmm. But obviously, Spark is, is very much like, you know, about her and me and, and me describing that in, in nerd form, you know, but right. but just never been, just, just, you know, people are different and, and never been like a storyteller type. Um, more, almost like you know, really into both, really into poetry and, and some of those those abstractions. Mm-hmm. Um, so you know, like the lyric, you know, like reach out is is a riddle. You know, it, it's about a seed. You know, the song is about a seed that becomes a flower, and that's what reach out's about. I don't know if a lot of people got that or not. <laughs> you know, trapped in a shell, my intention is strong. With a mouthful of water, I can break through a stone. Carried on a dove, I've dropped from the sky. Now the ground is above. My goal is head high. You know, mm-hmm. it's like we're sitting there going, "Okay, what would a seed, uh, uh, you know, that becomes a flower? What, what would it, the lyric be?" But, so you guys you know, bounce, just, just basically threw out a theme and just kind of bounced back and forth and and just worked it through. Yeah, together and yeah, you know, and sometimes it would come with you know just a just a title of a song, working backwards. Or, or, or the sound of, or, or the first sentence, or, or the way that it, you know the word "sun." Yeah, it's a, you know, it's it's quite. A, who knows? It was always kind of different, but but our throw was pretty much all the time. I mean, you know, like there's a lyrical thread, you know, in the first two records, definitely, um, in terms of that preoccupation with uh, um, the nature of reality, right? Or rather, this discomfort in trying to exercise the demons of, of that, you know. Right. Yeah, you know, the the basic like, why are we here? What's why? I don't understand why people suffer. <laughs> like, blah blah blah. And you can't really sing that over and over again. Like, yeah, it, it doesn't sing. You don't want to sound like a whiny ass bitch. So, <laughs> <laughs> exactly. <laughs> um, th- this song too. Uh, uh it fe- I think it features sort of the full range of what Jack Irons does drumming wise on the album. What I think myself and, and some other people would consider his approach to drums very minimal at times he, you know he yeah. keeps things very simple um obviously you've worked with him you know him a long time i would imagine that you see that as something that's um kind of liberating for you gives you maybe more space to to create in or or are there times where you sort of wish that maybe he did more so he filled in more space and you would you know wouldn't have to do as much was there is there any any pushback and forth in terms of his his style and how it, it matches what you want to do. Well, I mean, we we, we grew up playing together, and, and we kind of got our uh, our busy yayas out early on, you know, because we played together so long. And some of the early uh, anthem stuff was, you know, quite noty, you know, hmm, the okay. drums. And and I think it was a combination of of uh, where what is this was headed at, more more like groove. Uh, oriented and then the peppers adding to that you know obviously and uh, which which uh, 
you know made Jack more of like a keeping the groove going kind of drummer. And then his uh, his really deep appreciation for songs and and uh, he wants to enhance them and not get in the way. So it was very sensitive to not uh, step on you know play something over like a really important lyric or you know something to take attention away. So. In that way, he's an extremely rare thing, which is a super musical drummer, you know? Mm-hmm. And he's very very confident in, in, in what he can bring to it. And he's very proud of uh, his ability to support a song and make it come alive. Because mm-hmm. it all starts with, you know, the drums, really. And, and not like, uh, look what I can do kind of thing, you know? Was there an adjustment so the when you played with uh, Matt Cameron on Thunk? No, actually, that was very, very interesting because we we just walked into the rehearsal room and, and, and it, 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 it changed. It's different, but it's also another aspect, you know? I mean, Matt Matt's an incredible drummer, and, and uh, it was amazing how uh, easily we adjusted, but it wasn't the 11 with jack it was the 11 with matt and, it, and, and it, it was different like if you listen to like songs like why and and no ground and all that stuff uh it wouldn't have been possible to with jack you know it would have been different gotcha um and i remember i even remember playing why with, with you know with jack on drums and, and it felt different you know so they won't step their own throat but those songs were specifically designed with with my camera you know we we wrote them and and brought them to life with him so it's got his vibe all over it it's cool that you guys were willing to sort of adapt yourself to him when he came in i would think most people in that situation would you know the drummer would come in and it's like here's the song you know sort of fit fit into what we did because <laughs> we're not reworking yeah. it but well you, you always have to kind of maximize the chemistry you know and and, and uh uh you know tell you know telling somebody to be less of themselves <laughs> doesn't really make any sense. You have to kind of uh, mm-hmm. find a way that, that, that everyone is, is most joyful and within it, you know? Sure. Track eight. The guitar riff on this song reminds me a lot, we mentioned Jimmy Page earlier, uh, reminds me a lot of like Houses of the Holy and, and Physical Graffiti era. Um, yeah. Page.
Now, you got to play with John Paul Jones in The yes. Crooked Vultures. So is it weird when you kind of idolize a band and grow up being inspired by them and then actually stand next to them on stage or in the recording studio? Oh, oh yeah, no, extremely. But, I mean, you know, uh, you have to kind of, like, <laughs> it, wasn't, it wasn't my job to just get up on stage with John Paul Jones and fucking sit there and, like, start drooling and freak the fuck out. You know, I, I, had to just, <laughs> I had to like I had to kind of get my shit together and, and just uh, just be, you know figure out like like how to be you know most useful and, and integral to the to the sound of the band. And you know he is an incredible. Uh, I mean he's a genius and, and he's an amazing talent and and very. Uh, you know, most people, you know, having played with him in the Vultures, now I listen to Zeppelin records completely differently. I realize, oh my God, you know, that's him, that's him, that's him. You know what I mean? It's just yeah. the same yeah. thing. But he's also <clears throat> extremely kind and sweet. And uh, what, what what I loved, one of the, one of the things I loved the most was is uh, the infectious joy that he has when he plays music. You know. Mm-hmm. It just like reminded me at one point I looked around and I saw Dave smiling and Josh was smiling and JPJ was smiling and I'm smiling and I was like, like God, it's like we're in high school again or something, you know? <laughs> we're like we're looking at each other going, Can you believe this? We're on stage and we're playing rock music. Isn't this awesome? You know? It was funny. <laughs> That's awesome. So really were you brought funny. in to do things live that were already on the album or were you able to create some new things? Well, you know, definitely uh, um started from what was on the record and then mm-hmm. we, but we all evolved uh i mean the, the band itself evolved over the touring like if i watch uh austin city limits compared to like um the friend the canal plus uh canal plus uh show which is several months later the austin city limits was really early on in, in, in the touring cycle Mm-hmm. Um, and it, it's really a, quite a different band, you know. Just be, just start mm-hmm. to stretch out the songs, jam more, improvise more, take them different places, you know. Once, once but we, you have to start from the ground, you know, to be able to take off properly. So, you know, at first I kind of stuck with the program, and then little by little, I started to stretch out more. The guys started giving me a little solo spot, which is nice. And no pressure. <laughs> um, so, so there was never a point where you, where you tried where you tried a new part, and, and John Paul Jones kind of looked over at you and shook his head in disapproval, and <laughs> you were like, "Yeah, uh-huh. I won't do that again." Yeah, yeah, no, no. Thankfully, there wasn't. So, so uh, that's some, good. Uh, yeah, that's good. Yeah, I mean, you know, <laughs> I, I consider myself a tasteful guy. I didn't tell me yeah, yeah. Like, you know, two two hand tapping in the middle of a party. And say, hey. Um, <laughs> Um, but uh, what I was going to say, oh, but, but the one part that was hilarious is every single night, they, they wanted to start with No One uh, Loves Me, Neither Do I, which I play the bass because he's playing this 10-string lap steel crazy thing that he plays, you know. Mm-hmm. So 
I kept trying to say, dude, you can't. I'm like, who is that bald dude walking on stage with this amazing trio of legends? And why yeah. is he playing the bass? Right. When Jeff People Jones came to see. Stage. And right. it, it became this sort of, <laughs> it, it running joke. And, and every night, you know, every day before we got on stage, as we were right on the side, you know, he, he would grab me on the shoulder and he'd look at me and he'd go, Good luck. <laughs> 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 I was like, Thanks. Okay. Yeah, it was pretty funny. I was like, Seriously, can we open with something else? No. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like going to see Van Halen and the keyboards are all uh, on a tape. Yeah. <laughs> Eddie Van Halen's standing right there. Can I see him play keyboards, please? Yeah. <laughs> Instead oh, of the tape. I... Yeah, that's weird, isn't it? Well, that's how the jump thing happened, isn't it? Where it, where it was, uh, it was a sequencer, I think, and someone yeah. had the keyboard uh, half step off by accident, mm. and then the hilarity ensued. But somebody, okay. somebody said that that happened again when they play that New York show. It's like, come, oh, you guys, really? really? You guys can't get that right? <laughs> they played that <laughs> little club simple. gig. I heard that it's messed up again. So. Just go to the transpose menu. There's probably two ways. Yeah. Just make sure it's a zero. Just right. leave it. It's okay. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Coming in, in the last couple songs here on the album, Nine, Runaway, uh, you know, really features Natasha's voice. Um, mm-hmm. Obviously, and and she has a pretty distinctive voice. I think Tim, uh, his best comparison was Marianne Faithful. Um, right. Really gritty, dark. I mean, does not sing like a lady. I mean, like, she really digs into the song. Um, what, what were her, her influences, and um, what was uh, sort of you got to see her develop as a singer? What was that like? Well, I mean. When I first met Natasha, she 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 had a a, a band on Motown called Black Russian, which uh, I put out a record when she was very young, and that was her dream uh, when she lived in Soviet Russia to uh, basically, you know, she said, "I'm going to get signed to Motown." You know, she was still stuck in Soviet Russia, and everyone <laughs> went, "Oh, you're crazy, ha ha ha," you know, yeah. and of course yeah. that's exactly what ended up happening. So she started out extremely uh, R&B-ish, you know, mm. but with that kind of heavy Russian classical harmonic sense, you know. So um, it's just an incredible voice, very distinctive, like you said, uh, really rich, really deep, big range. Mm-hmm. Like, um, you know, in Howling Book, the song Howling Book, you know, she has this, like, insane resonance in her voice. And, you know, able to... Uh, you know, as a musician through and through, so she was able to like just say, you know, give me another track, and then sing. She worked everything out in her head. She almost never needed a piano to compose. She could just feel the notes and wow. and know exactly what what the what what they were doing. So yeah, I was always in awe of her. I mean, like a talent like I've never seen even close, and I've met some talented people, but. I hope that, uh, you know, some of the 11 records do it justice. But, you know, it's frustrating for me to realize that uh, I'm the only person on the planet that knows exactly how intensely badass she was, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, very, very uh, giving and selfless and stuff. And uh, she doesn't really have a huge ego about stuff. She's really enjoyed 
when we worked with bands. She really enjoyed uh, helping bands, you know, grow if they wanted to, and and were very nurturing. Mm-hmm. Well, in terms of yeah. vocals in the '90s, she really had one of the most unique vocals of the of the decade. You don't think of a lot of you know when you think of in terms of female vocalists, especially in the '90s. I think of people like Juliana Hatfield and Liz Fair, kind of defining yeah. that that era. Um, and you guys in general were pretty unique because I mean you're doing a three piece, you're doing without a bass, you're doing. Mm-hmm. Or, stand, or string to bass. You're doing male-female mm-hmm. vocal, which a lot of bands got away from uh, in the 90s. I, I can't even think of another band that was, you know, set up like that. Uh, did you find yeah. that you struggled to, to sort of fit in on on tours, or were you lucky enough to fit in with, you know, like like you mentioned Soundgarden taking you guys out. Did you have um, any trouble when you were trying to figure out, you know, how are we going to go out on the road and what bands are we going to play with? Well, it just it ended up happening organically, you know, touring with uh, Pearl Jam, Soundgarden, Queens. Um, you know, because we didn't have a lot of success, it was difficult for us to uh, um, get to some of the places where we had fans because we had them everywhere, but they were spread out, you know. Um, and, uh, you know, being the opening band, you know, because we never really had a headline tour, <clears throat> being the opening band is, is always tricky because... You're basically there as this very loud barrier between the audience and the band that came to see. <laughs> so you right. don't get, you know, you know, you just have to like hunker down and dig, dig deep in the trench and and just be yourself and and hope you communicate uh, across people's chase and 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 hope that uh, you know your joy and and belief in what you do is going to be uh, contagious enough that you get some some of the audience to. Uh, into it, you know, and, and, and I find, you know, a lot of people like, oh, yeah, I saw them opening for Sungard, they were amazing, and, you know, we definitely got at least, you know, say a quarter of the audience either becoming fans or intrigued or at least saying, well, that wasn't too bad, you know, sort of not a drag at least or whatever. Um, so it's, it's always a funny position to, to, to be coming from, you know. But we just got about the business of, of, of performing and performing the best we could, um, knowing that we were so completely different from any other band that was around. There was, you know, even though you could describe it as heavy or whatever, but there's so many elements that were unlike anything else, you know. So I don't know. I think I think we were pretty. Uh, actually, we you know the the eleven really survived on the. Uh, support and kindness of a uh, fellow artists you know because because the labels certainly did not uh, um do it and not to say that there wasn't people within those labels that weren't you know extremely uh, passionate and supportive but it, the structure just didn't allow for things to happen and and who knows if we were meant to you know uh, you know is not here now and, and and maybe a lot of it has to do with the frustration you know, it becomes very frustrating to feel like you're beating yourself up, you know, and beating, beating your head against the wall. But we always had to pick ourselves up. I mean, we always had a pretty deep period of depression after we made a record we were really proud of, and we realized, you know, there goes another record that, that no one's going to hear, you know. And it kind of uh, it makes you meditate on what, why are you doing it? Are you doing it for money and fame, or are you doing it because... 
you have no choice and you were born to do it and it's your job to safeguard this uh, talent and voice that you were basically given because we never really felt we owned any of it you know and uh, to make sure that it uh, you know it, it, it exists for people to whoever is resonant to the music will, will, will get to hear it and enjoy it and I'm always uh, it always makes me glad to to on Facebook or Twitter or whatever to to see you know people call out of the out of somewhere and go oh my god I love this band so much and it's so underrated and there should have been a huge hit and all that stuff it's you know that's something and then we get to come along 20 years after the fact and after the fact and and talk about it so, well, exactly. and introduce it to a, a new audience I think in a lot exactly. of ways you're you you're talking about um, I mean you're you're kind of creating a a time capsule of yourself. I mean, you're leaving like a chronicle of what you've done and, you know, things you've touched and it's recorded and it's there for other people to discover um, yeah. and appreciate. And I mean, that's something that, you know, Tim and I have played in bands and you start, to, you know, even at the level that we're at, we're still, you know, have the same feelings. I think that, that you did to some degree in terms of why am I doing this? You know, what, yeah. it's just so much work. What is it for? What is the point? You know, you play a show and there's three people there. Why do we haul this gear and do this for, and you sort of have to just resign yourself to, you know, I'm, I'm feel inspired. I want to make music and I just want to leave something. And, you know, it exactly. might be for us, you know, it's like, I just want my daughter to be able to hear, Hey, my dad was in yeah. a band and he made some music and this is what it sounds like. And, and for you being yeah. able to be, um, uh, in so many projects, I mean, it's just amazing. Like your, 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 you know, thumbprint is on all of these things, and to kind of to be able to go back through, which you know is one of the points of this this show is to, uh, you know, use an album as a catalyst to discover somebody's whole, um, you know, whole career and, and sort of put it a, a focus maybe around that record, but you know, use it as a way to um, go out and look at all the other things that they've done. Um, yeah. No, it's it's amazing, and you know, like, uh, you can imagine how many uh, people in the history of uh, mankind uh, were doing incredible things, and they didn't have a recorded medium yet, and maybe they didn't, you know, uh, they didn't, you know, weren't affiliated with the church or or the court, you know, composers, and they did incredible things which we'll never hear, we'll never know, you know, just like writers or painters or whatever. But really, ultimately, it's, it's, I guess it's between yourself and, you know, and the universe. Like, uh, you know, you feel good. I mean, a job well done makes you feel really good, whether it brings you rewards or not. You know, no one can take that away from you when you know you, you gave it uh, your all and you did your best and, and you actually like it and you're into it. It's, it's all good. So speaking of that, it's, it's been, what did we say, 19 years, 20 years? 19 years, uh, yeah. When you... When you uh, think about this record, and I don't know if you if you've listened to it any time lately, but uh, is there anything about it that that you would have done different, or um, are the things that you learned doing it that that really went on and kind of changed the the way that you uh, you wrote and what your career turned out to be? Well, I think I think two things. One one is that uh, for in terms of the actual record, I just wish the vocals were a little louder. And then, mm-hmm. you know, it was those experiences we had that, that, that led us little by little to become more autonomous in terms of the documenting of our music, you know? Mm-hmm. Because we, we figured that we could mess it up as good as the next guy. <laughs> and, and right. you know, we, we were 
know, you, because it's really an important part of, uh, uh, and you have to learn through the process. You know, when we get the big the studio here at the house, I mean, the first thing that happened is we made Avant Garde Dog, which is probably, uh, you know, it's got amazing songs, but it's very, very much produced. You know, there's tons of things going flying by, things that's scary. We just went a little bit uh, that punch drunk over there with the old uh, time and gear and freedom. Yeah. And so, and then we kind of, uh, you know, we kind of got that uh, out of our system. So for Howling Book, it's much more, you know, that to me, that, that's what to me Howling Book is is kind of a, um, like a like a twin to Eleven Eleven, you know, two times uh, where it was just basically a live sound, mm -hmm. a few dubs here and there. Yeah, I mean, you know, it's uh, and I don't know, I don't know why, because a lot of people you know, do their thing, and then there's people producing and engineering, and there's nothing wrong with that, but for some reason with us, to fulfill the vision all the way to the end, um, you know, it's a feeling of, no, I really meant to say this, it's like, we didn't want to play telephones, you know? Mm -hmm. <laughs> we, we didn't want to play telephones, so down the line it became a diluted version, because we'd rather, you know, stand uh, 100% behind what we did and, and not have to say Yes, but only if, and I wish that, and if only, you know, because the growth comes from that, because you just want to be able to, like, I mean, it just, like, happened every time we make a record. We dig it for a little bit, and then immediately we got antsy going, oh, man, and we kind of messed that up, or what are we, it's like, <laughs> you know, it's like, it's a process, really. It's not like, it's not about, it's not even about the records. It's a, it documents the time what, where you were at, you know? To very mm -hmm. degrees, you know, the situation with, with uh, the studio and the environment and the time and the budget and the and the thing, whether you got sick or not, and whether this person understood what you were trying to convey with your tones, or whether the producer had a ulterior motive, uh, you know, sent by the label to straighten out all the rough edges or, you know, change a band into something that are not, you know, there's all kinds of... Uh, I mean, that, that's why my work as a, a producer and engineer has always been to be as transparent as possible. Mm -hmm. And if somebody wants to know a different way or uh, wants to see a different angle of what they're doing and they ask me, you know, for for that, and then I'm able to do it with, uh, you know, reasonable good taste because, it, you know, I have to become them to be able to be uh, assistive. You know, so, so it's not like uh, uncomfortable or odd or, you know, it's all part of it. It's all part of it. I, I, I don't, you know, making music, helping others make music, it's all just part of, uh, um, you know, doing this crazy thing, which is uh, hopefully ultimately uh, uh, art-based and, and leaving something behind or just communicating uh, the human experience through, you know, songs and sounds and whatever. Right. So, do you do you, do you feel pretty content right now as uh, your role as a engineer, producer, and sort of a, an ingredient of other projects, or do you sort of deep down see yourself having the itch to to do a, a full band kind of thing again, where it's it's more well, organic and it's you and you and a group yeah, of other I mean, people? Yeah, definitely. I've got you know definitely got enough uh, uh, starting to brew like another solo record. Mm -hmm. And Jack and I have been talking about uh, uh, starting something up, you know. Um, mm -hmm. I certainly need you know, at least every year or two to, to be able to do the 
that for my sanity, you know, to just to make make my own music somehow, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Right now, I hope to find enough time to uh, put together the rarities release and make it, you know, um, good and, and 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 solid and document all the stuff that was never released. So just quite a bit of it, you know, demos between records, songs we didn't put on records, whatever. Um, mm-hmm. It'll be an, an interesting uh, rag ragtag uh, compilation, but you know, pretty important in terms of uh, uh, showing aspects. Uh, I mean, you know, before I have a guard dog, we had a whole record written, and then we just threw it all away and started writing from scratch because there was so much time between Thunk and a guard dog for us was at the time two and a half years was uh, quite a long time. Yeah, you know, interesting. Any chance of um, the early eleven stuff being reissued on maybe like vinyl and with, I mean, with a remastering I, I, or something? I, would, I would love to get my hands on uh, those tapes and actually have another go at mixing it. You know, um, the problem with the very first record is that I don't even know Morton Creek Records doesn't exist anymore, and nobody that was around then knows anything about it. And, and somewhere there's a uh, Somewhere there's a, there's a tape or not. Maybe you got erased, so who knows if it even exists, you know? And hmm. Hollywood Records has the other two, and I just got to try to figure out, like, what uh, um, what to do, you know, how to how to get a hold of it. So either just leave it as it is or, 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 to, or to try to, like, you know, have it. I'm not really sure how I feel about the purity of uh, going back and trying to uh, have another go at it whether it's best just to leave it as it was and that's what it was mm-hmm. or mm-hmm. to try to improve, improve it. I mean, I don't know, maybe it improves some things and mess other things up, you know. Right. So maybe right. just kind of leave it. It's probably more important to spend spend time uh, making music for the future, you know, so. Mm-hmm. Well, and then I think we have um, gone way past our planned <laughs> time <laughs> for this uh, episode, so... Uh, we really appreciate you coming on and, and talking about the album yeah. with us. Okay. Um, My pleasure, man. Uh, I want to mention, uh, for everybody listening, the solo album Spark, like I mentioned, is available on iTunes and Amazon, and you can stream it on Spotify along with the 11 catalog. You can go to 11 World, which will be updated sometime soon, but you can also uh, you can check out sam- um, streaming I believe a lot of the songs and, Yeah, a lot uh, of Spotify, yeah Okay, and then your website uh, Alan Johannes you can yeah. go there dot com and um, find out about all the stuff that you're up to and uh, I think that's that covers it. I just want to mention to all our listeners to please visit digmeoutpodcast.com where you can buy t-shirts and also donate to the podcast so we can keep this thing running from uh, our uh, week-to-week bills and whatnot. So uh, we want to thank you. And thank you, Alan, for coming on. Thank you, uh, time. Awesome. And Jay, thank you. We'll be back next week <laughs> with another episode. Let's, what? Let's all hug from, from different sides of... From all three rooms. (laughs) From all three rooms. (laughs) (laughs) All right. We'll be back next week with another episode. We'll be back next week with another episode of Dig Me Out.
Want to leave feedback? Join the conversation about this episode. Visit digmeoutpodcast.com for links to our Facebook page and Twitter feed. And we're out. I love to interrupt you as you're trying to do the whole radio guy spiel. <laughs> I really appreciate it. <laughs> you guys are good. You guys are good like that. That's funny. Uh, I just like to rattle him. That's awesome. <laughs> Before we let you go, could I bother you for to do just a little promo for the um, for the show? Just something like, this is Alan Johannes from 11 and you're listening to Dig Me Out? Something like that? Absolutely. That's a, Dig Me Out is enough, right? Yep. Hang on a second. I'll do one better than that. Let me grab my little. Uh... There we go. Let's see if this picks up enough. Uh huh. You hear that? Yeah. Yep. It, it that broke, was cool. I think you might have. It, what were you gonna say, Jay? I was just say you broke up a little bit, but uh, it sounded awesome. Oh, my voice did. The voice it's like did? it like distorted or something. Like it got really loud. So like when you went to uh, sing, it got all distorted. Oh, is it is it not usable? If you might wanna. I'll do another one. I'll do a different okay. one. That's better. Nice. What is that? Yes. Is that better? Yeah, that was awesome. Is that the uh, cigar box? That's my cigar box. Holy shit. (laughs) I didn't didn't know a cigar box could sound like that. Sounds like it okay, I might re- be using this. It sounds like it has reverb, <laughs> reverb on it or something. Yeah. Well, the, the, yeah, it's all the other strings are resonating. That's why. Oh, okay. It's got eight strings, and it's uh, uh, you know, just kind of self-resonates. It's really cool. Gotcha. What are the are they extra low strings or what are the extra strings? Uh, it, it's uh, C, F, D flat, E flat, and uh, I've got it like uh, in octaves. You know? So it's it's in fourths, like a like a you know, like a bass, but it's in C. Excellent. So it almost looks like a mandolin, and and it's almost about the size of a mandolin, but it's lower. Very cool. Wow.